Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Stephanie Newell, who's author of Histories of Dirt, Media and Urban Life in Colonial and Postcolonial Lagos. This was published in 2020 by Duke University Press, and it is a complex, multimedia, multi-method understanding and analysis of the concept of dirt and what that means as we think about a whole bunch of different things like humanism. Um, But I'm going to let Stephanie tell us a little bit about that as we talk about this extraordinary book. First, I'd like to welcome Stephanie Newell to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Lily. Thanks ever so much for having me on this podcast. Um, Yeah, it's quite an unusual topic for a literary scholar to embark on and um, all through my training I've, I've been focusing on literature and literary culture and popular literature and getting more and more historical really as I went on so my PhD was in African popular literature and contemporary local publications in Lagos and um, other parts of Nigeria and Ghana and then I started to get more and more historical and that took me into the colonial archives and it took me into Um, African-owned newspapers from the colonial period, of which there are many in local languages, but particularly in English. And also into, there's an interesting sort of archive of traders, traders' memoirs and traders' journals, and even creative writing by traders. Some of them are African traders of palm oil and all kinds of commodities, but then also quite a lot of British working-class palm oil traders who were writing their memoirs. Now, as I started to read these, and as I got kind of more and more piling up, I started to see that um, a lot of the time these traders, whenever they were trying to describe their encounters with extremely, to them, extremely other cultures, they turned to the rhetoric of dirt to think about otherness and to think about the people they were encountering. And it wasn't simply dirt in the most negative sense. It was a lot of negative, you know, the the dirty native kind of rhetoric that we we even know in contemporary racism, but also a sort of weird, frustrated curiosity about the other cultures that they couldn't understand. And and that opened up my kind of um, interest, really, in the category of dirt and, and how it might be used to open up a social history or a cultural history of of intercultural encounters and of living, you know, neighbours, strangers, living together and, and just, you know, how human societies make use of these kind of categories of dirt and otherness in order to try to understand multicultural context. So that's a very, very broad kind of setting for it. I suppose what I'll just say immediately is that, as you can tell, I'm English and dirt in English English means something rather different from dirt in American English. And then, as as we'll find, as, as we keep talking about this, dirt is almost impossible 
to translate. For, you know, it can't even be translated between American and English. Um, but also into the, the very multilingual Nigerian context that we were working in. You know, that when we started to ask people what, <clears throat> excuse me, what they understood by the category of dirt, there was a there was a lot of kind of explication of that. You know, what do you mean by dirt? And we were saying, well, no, what do you what do you think about dirt? And immediately that opened us away from any kind of um, definition that we might be bringing in from English into all the local language, Nigerian pidgin, Hausa, Yoruba, Igbo, all the local language words that might mean dirt and a huge spectrum of different words meaning different types of dirt. So, so you can see how that's, that's probably the complexity of the project that, that this one word was completely unstable and, and deliberately so and we couldn't we, we, you know, out of it, you can't say, oh, dirt means this in Nigeria or in Lagos, or even dirt means this in English. And, and, and you're right that, I mean, you're talking about the difference between um, Americans' understanding of dirt and British understandings of dirt. Um, can you, can you just like tease out a little bit of that difference? Well, if we are to stick with America and England, which we won't be right. when we go over to Lagos, we'd have perhaps an American might think of dirt in a very sort of material sense as the earth on the ground or the, uh, you know, the soil that you might plant seeds in as being, that's a kind of dirt. Now, we would never in England use dirt to refer to soil or earth. We'd, we'd use it to refer to something that is soiled uh, which I think in an American English you would also use, um, you know, some dirty talking or dirty thinking or being dirty. You know, there's sort of ways that, in a way, with this project, we moved we moved into dirty as an adjective um, very quickly. And what is, what is you know, what do you think of as dirty? What is dirty? Um, but the project, it was deliberately open, as I said before. It was about um, trying to invite people, very much people on the ground, people living in Lagos, um, to to think about the category of dirt in their urban environment and to think about you know we, we were saying we were asking questions like well what what do you think of is dirty what would you describe as dirty and we had very basic sort of areas that we took people into people places things you know are there particular things that you think of as dirty are there particular people and as you would imagine when we were in the category of people, it was the most interesting, the most sensitive, the most potentially inflamed, and also the most revealing, I think, about um, differences between um, multicultural Lagos and other urban settings, thinking perhaps about cities in America. And and so I just wanted to take you through um, essentially the structure of the analysis and the research that you did, which goes through more than just the 20th century, that you talk about the long 20th century in the book, but you are exploring different modes of analyzing how this word and this concept is discussed. And you talked about the memoirs by the traders, um, but you also use a lot of archival work from the first part of the century and you use media discussions and then you use focus groups. Can you talk about the way that this sort of is the need, uh, uh, this is why you had to structure the analysis this way? 
Yeah, we were really, as a team, let me say um, from the start, this was not an individual enterprise. This project was um, a large project. It involved um, three project researchers in Lagos and a project coordinator in Lagos as well. And it involved a team in the UK. And also for the first year, we had a team in um, Nairobi in Kenya doing comparative work so that we were always comparing across. So, So this was a very kind of complex project in terms of its structure. But the idea was um, that we we wanted to, in a way, to ask about whether particular types of archive produce particular kinds of research method and even particular outcomes. So to give you an example of this, um, I did did all of the colonial archival work, so the material from the early 20th century, from sort of really 1900s public health archives up to about the 1930s, 1940s. And um, the question really in those archives, those colonial archives was, is it possible to read in between the lines of a colonial ideology which completely structured that archive, especially when you're thinking about public health? You know, there was policy, there were urban planning developments, architectural, you know, the The whole dimension of urban planning in the colonial era was about um, imposing a Eurocentric idea of the city and of um, drainage and sanitation um, and medicine as well onto the local cultures that those colonial powers dominated. So there's this huge archive. But the question from this project was not about whether and how the state, whether it's a colonial state or a post-colonial state, Um, prescribes measures for cleaning up dirt. The question that we wanted to ask was about how did local people at any point in that long century, how did local people um, respond to those measures? And how did the media in those urban environments represent those measures and engage with readers? And how did audiences react to the sort of propaganda materials that were being circulated by the colonial regimes and and, um, public health experts? You know, so all the time, the reason it's a complex project is that we had um, this emphasis on a history of public opinion, you know, a history of, of people locally situated African responses to those measures that might have been colonial they might have been through you know medical authorities or through the state in the post-colonial state um so the thread that connects this long century is um it's it's about kind of looking at the various archives available various types of documentation available creating our own documentation through interview transcripts but really asking about shifts in public opinion shifts in people's perceptions of what is dirty and so at every point we we were emphasizing that public opinion is greater than say public health policy or government policy or doctrine about who or what might be dirty that comes from the pulpit or particular newspapers or the state do you see what i mean so it was about it was about really sort of historicizing public opinion how people respond to the media materials circulating around their environments and and, and and it's so elusive, um, but that so that's why it was such an ambitious project, just trying to sort of trace a, a history of changes in that public opinion. And and that was one of the the aspects of the of the research that I found fascinating is that you are reading responses um, to try to get 
information about what the African or the Lagosian public opinion is in 1920s um, with regard to sort of the colonial discussion. Uh, and I was, I was fascinated by that. And then, you know, the shifting to different ways of trying to get that, as you say, elusive response. Um, and I also wanted you to explain not only the concept that we're talking about with regard to dirt, um, but how you also sort of are working with it in the book and thinking about it in ways, as you say, there's a multicultural and multilinguistic approach to it, but it's also oftentimes categorized as a, in a binary way. Can you talk a bit about how that that sort of thinking also helped shape the project? Yeah, certainly. Um, the starting point for the project, as I mentioned, was reading a lot of materials where dirt was being used as a category to identify cultural otherness, to, so to push away, to be used in a binary sense. But all the time, whenever dirt is used in this way, there's the person who's using that category, the observer, is kind of marking out a failure of their perception, a failure of understanding. So in the early days, in the, the Palmol traders' um, memoirs that I read, you had you had traders that were sort of uh, disgusted and revolted and using these very visceral physical responses to the perceived dirt of others. But, but they wanted to sell their products. They wanted those very people who had money and tastes and they were consumers in an economy they wanted them to to take up the things that they were selling so in labeling them dirty there was this kind of perception of a failure of of you know that that the observer themselves was failing to understand why somebody might be consuming those local materials why they might be doing the thing that they were doing and all the way through the project we had this this binary operation of dirt versus, and often it wasn't the opposite of cleanliness, it was the opposite of neatness, or it was the opposite of something else, you know, that, but, but dirt as a category, very often it just marked the way, it marked people's um, failure of understanding. So I'll give you another example that um, when we were having interviews, focus group discussions in contemporary Lagos, um, sometimes when a member of the team asked an interviewee, are there people that you think of as dirty? The answer came via the pulpit of a, say, a Pentecostal preacher of, you know, saying, or, or even the governments um, saying, yes, homosexuality is dirty. We think homosexuals are dirty. And that was often a starting point for a label of dirt, a very negative, you know, um, reactionary label against homosexuality. But, but this is where this category of curiosity came in. So when, when somebody was labeled dirty, we had hundreds of interviews where people, they, they said, yes, we think this is dirty. We think this person is dirty. But then they started to say, but why, why would they do it then if it is dirty? Why might somebody do that? And, and then, and then in, in our transcripts, because these were qualitative interviews, this wasn't about quantification. It was about you know, following up with questions, getting people to delve into what they were saying. So, 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 Almost every interviewee in contemporary Lagos was saying, but, well, why might somebody choose to behave like that if we socially 
through the state, through the law, through our church, if we regard that as dirty or immoral behaviour. So, you know, and then people would start to ventriloquise about, um, and often in, in the transcripts, you get this really fascinating movement from first to, well, from third person to first person. So it's, well, well, you know, they are like, they are dirty, blah, blah, blah. And then you'd get, but what, but how is it if you are homosexual? And then, but if I was, you know, so, so there you got this move. And by the top, by the end of that kind of moment in the interview, you've got the interviewee um, really speculating, really curiously attempting to cross over from the category of dirt into an understanding in a multicultural setting of why somebody might be like this, right? So, and this, this I think if there's any continuity over the material from the early 20th century right through to the present, it is that the, when people um, use the category of dirt to describe other people, it's almost always... Um, in in Lagos, it's almost always followed by an effort to understand why that person might be doing what they're doing, and and that I mean Lagos is hugely multicultural, um, and people are very careful about marking that multiculturalism. You know, a lot of our interviewees would say, um, "Look, this is my personal. I have my personal opinion, and this is dirty," but. Let people be, let them do what they want. I might see it as dirty, but for them it's not dirty. So all the time in our interviews, there was this constant kind of sense of a civil society or a civic space. Even even among people that were quite reactionary in some of the things they said, you know, particularly around gender or other issues, and they they just um they they stepped back from um from using dirt in a completely binary, categorical, absolute way. Um, and I saw a lot of hope and potential in that. Actually, it was quite, um, you know, it was it was quite different from simply regarding, you know, when you use the label of dirt, dirt as the colonialists did. It was, you know, almost always in that old written archive. It was almost always completely dismissive, and it was with a with a view to cleaning up, sanitizing, transforming the other. Um, you know, when we came to our actual interviews, we didn't. We didn't see that at all. Now, the, back to your your question about archives and methods. You know, this is this is a really important sort of research question for us. I think as scholars, you know, when we do oral history work or interview oral interview work, um, you know, we we may always be moving beyond binary oppositions, which may be in the archive when you're dealing with legislation, states, um, policy, and you know those in positions of absolute authority and power you know, who are who are saying, you know, remove this, clean this up, do this, do that. That's very, very different from the sort of nuanced qualitative material that, that we got back when interviewing people. So quite, quite a few questions in the book are about, you know, the extent to which a particular research method would produce a particular sort of um, positioning, really, or particular idea of subjectivity. And and the sort of compiling the different forms of methods means that you you know you again have the potential for difference in response um, or outcome because you don't have the same method used across all of the time periods. Exactly. Yeah, and it's such an obvious question in the social sciences. You know, there's so many courses on methods that teach exactly that. Um, 
But I think with media studies, literary studies, cultural history, we don't we, we don't have the same exposure to these um, methodological debates. And that's specifically what this book is aimed at raising. There's some very interesting examples as well of where, where I'm trying to um, I'm trying to push against what the archive produces. So there's a whole section on um, public health movies that were produced by colonial regimes, public health units and shown all around um or the whole of the continent, actually, showing these movies. And then the people showing those movies were um, trying to get feedback from the audience, trying to work out you know, whether the, their movies were achieving the desired impact. And that research, I have to say, was um, really pleasurable because in, in the colonial archive, you've got these medical officers showing movies where, quite obviously, if you watch the movie, there's a very clear message about um, European sanitation and medicine being better than African alternatives, right? But but when they when the movies are shown, the officials um are really confused because a lot of the time audiences absolutely are beside themselves with laughter at these scenes that are very serious scenes showing that you you African, you need to clean up in this way. And people the audience's responses were really interesting. You know, there's a lot of laughter, a lot of talk, a lot of Un, untranslated or untranslatable um, responses to the movies. And so what I decided to do was try and experiment with the colonial archive by focusing in on the um, on those nonverbal responses. So laughter, for example, and reading the entire archive from the point of view of a laughing audience member to see if the sort of binary opposition that always accompanies those who wish to do the cleaning up, you know, cleaning up of dirt to see if that could be sort of shifted somehow. And and actually, that was the most productive method for going into the colonial archives. You know, you can only reiterate so many times how racist the colonial regime was. And um, doing this project, I, I really have to say that I, I never want to go in a colonial archive again. I really do not want to go in. They're so racist. They're so... They're, they're, they, they, they're so adamant in their belief that here's a society that needs to be changed and we're the ones that will change it. Um, and and I just, um, you know, having spent seven years on this project with a lot of that in those colonial archives, um, you know, the, the level of, um, of racism is just, is just stunning. And I assume it's just sort of, it's, it just is, it's the, it's the constancy with regard to the imperial project, yeah, there's there's this there's just a, a a fundamental belief that in white superiority. I mean, that's it's as it's as blatant as that. It's totally unsubtle, and and just being in the archive as somebody trying to do a project that you know here's an archive that covers the period that our project wished to cover, and um, yes, to some extent, you can undertake oral interviews and there's a lovely African archive of newspapers very largely owned and controlled by elites so it's about you know you've got a class dimension in looking at those newspapers that's very interesting Um, but in terms of kind of grassroots um, Africans outside the colonial administrative structures um, that archive that colonial archive does cover you know those populations and and you know, historians all over the place have tried have tried to find ways of reading against the grain, and you know, working for African 
perspectives within you know to retrieve those from those archives and again that was that was inevitably that was my project as well um but you do get to a point of saturation actually as a scholar you don't you know how much how much should you repeat that colonial racism in order to establish your framework right um and especially in historical projects, like for mine, covering a long 20th century, so sort of 120 years, if you start with the colonial racism, it's very difficult to move away from it because, um, and, and it dominates the history that you narrate. So I think, you know, as historians, we do need to be finding ways to really radical different ways to write about colonial policy and the experience of colonialism and the encounter the colonial encounter without um, prioritizing that archive. Um, and, you know, I sort of started to try to shake up the archive by reading only for African perspectives. And that was the, that was the sort of agenda. But, but basically my critique of my book is that the first half of it is dominated by this colonial archive. And, um, it, you know, I've tried to create a really large separation between part one and part two and to sort of highlight how incompatible the contemporary material is with that colonial archive. And yet there are, there are ways that there are historical links. Of course there are. Um, but, you know, just methodologically, it does, it does pose quite well ethical questions actually, as much as methodological ones. By just the question of spending as much time as one does in looking at those archives to suss out the information. Absolutely. And, and the level to which you reiterate the, um, racist sentiments that you find in the archive you know you could you could they're, they're so appalling that you could quote them constantly because they're so awful do you know what I mean you get yeah. the personalities of the individuals concerned and you get you, you just see how wrong they are constantly and it's it's quite it's almost seductive it's it's attracts you to quote it and to quote more of it because it's you know it's just so shocking and and yet by doing that quoting work um there's this that you know it's using up space on a page it's using up it creates um, an optic quite literally um uh for for the material that you present that will will become you know opposed to it so it, it does take a centrality by putting it there and you know at one point I was thinking with the book to um to start with a contemporary material and um start with the present and then have the colonial material behind it as the second part of the book um and that presented its own kind of challenges um, but you know I just think these are really important questions for us as cultural historians to be thinking about now that that certainly makes a lot of sense in in context not only of this work but of thinking about not only colonialism but also racism in general and yeah. and how to how to discuss and analyze and structure research around it um, I wanted to ask you a question, and you've sort of referenced the the, the multicultural nature of Lagos in particular, um, and the diversity of Nigeria. But a lot of the book is also discussing understanding dirt in context of urbanization um, and the plans for the cities. Um, and I wanted you to discuss a bit why urbanization is particularly vital to our understanding of this analysis? I think it, there's a lot of different types of city in Africa. Some cities are um, started off as 
local indigenous cities, and Lagos is one of those. Other cities like Nairobi were actually um, started by colonial railway depots and, you know, they were sort of clustered around colonialism. So there's lots of different ways that that cities have um, emerged on the continent. Um, I think the reason for really focusing in on on the city or on urbanisation and, and to also to sort of ask about whether there are comparisons that can be made between Lagos and other cities, cities like Nairobi, um, is that we just very often when you see large global cities represented, um, particularly in the international press or international media representations, there is a focus on quite literal dirt, you know, rubbish tips, slums, the use of the word slum is used, which is a very um, loaded term to be using, you know, for low income settlements. And dirt actually does feature as an optic in media representations of global cities. Um, often it is the international media representation. So, um, you know, just thinking back to the Ebola outbreak of 2014, when um, when journalists were writing about Crew Town in Liberia, it was, you know, the, the language was almost colonial of kind of the, the sewage flowing in open gutters in the street and there's flies and vermin. And, you know, you got the discourse that you could see from the 1890s. And, um, and then there's been other representations of global African cities that focus directly in on so-called slums, slum dwellers, trash, dirt, rubbish tips, you know, all of this. And so, so... The idea with our project was to not to pretend those didn't exist either as representations or as actual urban spaces, but to ask local people what they thought about them, right? So it's like it was about saying almost on a really practical level, you know, how is your waste disposed and, you know, what do you think about recycling? You know, every, all, the, all the areas that sort of become very loaded in representations of, urb, of, of global cities. And we just wanted to ask local people what they thought about those. And it wasn't to say dirt is bad or rubbish chips are, you know, this or that or the other. It was just to sort of ask people how they related to... Um, to their urban environments and you know what did they do with their rubbish when they put it out and um you know what 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 their views were about um slum clearance as it's called in the media a lot of the time you know so so it was about it was almost about trying to um trying to iron out the polemics around dirt in order to see how people used it in different ways and you know they sort of the sort of ways the urban environment may or may not be seen as dirty. So, you know, it would be so tempting to say, look, here is a here's a global negative term to describe African cities and it's um it's controversial and it's um reductive and it you know it immediately does a lot of negative ideological work to use that term. And that that was the problem with um taking that term into this project, of course. But the idea was to to make it complex, make it nuanced and put it through local people's perceptions rather than um, rather than adopting a kind of, you know, outsider view. And and I wanted to ask in this context as well, because you you also made reference to some of this earlier. And the role of class is often associated with concepts of clean or dirty 
neat or sloppy. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the role of class in some of this? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And um, it really took me by surprise in the project. I hadn't been expecting to write, to see how class um, became operational as in relation to dirt. It, it wasn't kind of there as something I'd expected, but um, what became clear very early on was that when I turned to the African, the archive of African newspapers, African-owned newspapers, um, largely published in English and circulated around Lagos, you had... Um, these were all owned and managed by um, members of the educated elites, men, all men. Um, and you had newspapers that were radically anti-colonial, radically anti-colonial. And then newspapers that were extremely conservative as well, you know, by people that had been knighted by, uh, you know, in, in, the, in England. And, you know, this, this was a very, very different political spectrum. And the press is remarkable in Lagos for having such diversity of, of political um, positioning. But but every time, in the, say, from the 1920s onward, every time um, sanitation, public health, town planning are discussed, um, those editors were, were talking about slum clearance and recommending the removal of the poor populations or their, in, or their improvement and recommending the building of, um, you know, Western-style houses to replace the um, mud huts that were seen as dirty by the colonial regime. So, so in terms of class, you had um, you had like the newspaper elites were who were also the taxpaying municipal elites and going into kind of politics themselves, very much um, very much endorsing a kind of um, Eurocentric town planning perspective around urban clearance and sanitation, and that's in spite of um, what the archives also showed, which was like a huge amount of um, local, you know, the, the, the mud and thatch building was acknowledged throughout the first half of the 20th century by all kinds of public health experts as very cool in the heat and, um, and um, clean and spacious. And, you know, there the, the weren't... Um, you know, the, the, the adoption of these kind of um, models, these blueprints um, of planning were, were not kind of justified in relation to what they were rejecting. So, so I kind of got this, this um, sense that, that um, a class, the newspaper-owning class, the educated elites in, in Lagos were very much um, sort of adopting this position as part of their class position. To situate, to put themselves over and against other kinds of elite, like chiefly elites, for example, or um, yeah, you know, other other kinds of um, um, of of group that might be seeking status in the city. And and so this is another layer in terms of not only the discussion of um, the sort of imperialism and colonialism and race and the binary nature but then we have this discussion of class class internal to the lagos um sort of dynamic um as you're looking at it across a long period of time um as well as the class that's being imposed by the colonial um traders 
and throughout the the discussion i found i found like there's there's a lot of stuff that you are following as you say it's somewhat elusive but there's a lot of points that you are not only following but unearthing to sort of discuss in this book um and i i wanted to ask you a question about what you call the anti-humanist currents that are connected to this sort of histories of dirt. Yeah. It's inevitable that um, when a category like dirt is being used against, um, to describe people, to describe other people, that there's going to be an anti-humanist element in it. And, you know, the most obvious examples are around um you know genocidal genocidal discourse where you get the other is associated with vermin of some kind so um in rwanda obviously it was kind of the 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 instruction to kill the cockroaches and in nazi germany jews were associated with rats and vermin and you know this kind of um this kind of these ideas about dirt and the dirt of other the other are very much um you know that they lie behind the the kind of language that makes genocide possible. Um, you can see it in contemporary racist discourse and also homophobic discourse, where you get, um, you know, thinking about examples of homophobia, for example, where where you know when a when a queer body is associated with something that's filthy and dirty. And um, I mean, the president of of Gambia about seven eight years ago called homosexuals vermin that need to be eradicated. You, you see, you get, you know, the, the concept of dirt when it attaches to another's body can um, lead to a dehumanisation that then makes possible eradication. And that is a very direct line. And I think we can see that historically in a number of, um, of examples. And so, so, you know, that's, that's something that is unavoidable when, when discussing um histories of dirt and you know that I'm, I'm very you know I've become very um edgy when politicians use um dehumanizing labels um to you know in in sort of you know the populist discussions of racism for example because you just immediately get you immediately get a dehumanizing discourse you immediately get this this um in, invitation to violence I think so dirt you know, there's a strand, the, and what I'm seeing is a kind of anti-humanist current around the discourse of dirt, you know, is, is very much about this kind of invitation to erase the other. Um, and that's something that I think we all need to look out for. Um, you know, having said that, I don't think my book is, um, I don't think it's a liberal book. I don't think it's a liberal book. I don't think it's trying to, um, to kind of... Um, understand dirt in order to pr- promote multicultural toleration through um, looking at individual responses. Do you see what I mean? I don't think yes. it, I wouldn't position it like that. I'd say, um, you know, that that this book, as a, it's a history of public opinion and it, en- it engages with, with the complexities of people's curiosity and speculation about dirt, as well as failures of recognition um, that may lead to violence. And, and also specifically... Um, I think what I what I brought out of the project is a sense of um, of structural and systemic issues around you know when when this language of dirt is used in a categorical way, um, it, it it can only cause trouble. It's part and, of the exercise of power. 
And and that was my final question in terms of what what do you see in terms of these structural and systemic issues around power that's that again you have you have the example obviously from the colonial period but if we move forward to a contemporary context um what where does this situate itself in our understandings of the concept as applied and discussed, as you said, in the focus groups and with interviewees? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, not, it's not a project that made huge innovative discoveries. It made some very commonsensical um, points, I think, about um, that, that, that when, you know, we were focusing on people on the ground, people largely people without power, the sort of middle and lower income groups who, who didn't have easy access to um, um, government or, you know, structures for changing their society, even in the smallest way, um, but who were participants in uh, producing public opinion about a lot of issues, you know, people who went to church and heard things from the pulpit about sexuality, for example, that they were then processing into their ordinary lives, talking to other people about, you know, so this very dynamic field of of, of public opinion and popular opinion. Um, and I think that the what what the interviews in contemporary Lagos really, really highlighted for me was, was that um, you know that that people in positions of power like preachers and prime ministers, presidents, were um, were for, were far more kind of categorical in their uses of dirt. You know, they, they, and I think we see that in, in America as well at the moment, where you've got, you know, people, politicians who will use terms that are so categorical, like criminal or thug, um, you know, to identify elements as other. And, and actually, um, I suppose the optimistic point in the project, the optimistic point is that people on the ground just don't, don't, you know, they're just the public opinion is more complex than that. So the messages that come down from the sort of, um, you know, from the state and and from various institutions are often um, processed into really quite interesting and um, tangential kind of meanings on the ground. And you know, that would be something that I'd, I'd see as quite quite a positive thing, really. That I, that public opinion is always more complex than the sort of propaganda and, and messages that are being um, disseminated. And, and that would also include public health messages, so messages whether that's around, say, Ebola or around COVID, um, that that those messages might seem very clear and categorical, but actually, um, you know, when they circulate in as public opinion, they can become, you know, in, in, take on all kinds of different manifestations and meanings and become very complex and different from what, from the apparently clear message that is um, released from on high. So, so I think, you know, that's sort of, that's where I'm at really with that project, I think. And so my next question is what are you working on now? Well, um, something very different. Um, I've gone back to my literary scholarship, uh, having managed to write this whole book on dirt with only two footnotes referencing works of literature. (laughs) (laughs) back to um there's some really really interesting um local publications in nigeria from the 1950s and 1960s they're pamphlets and um and they connect back to a whole hundred year 
history of um, newspapers that produced creative writing by local authors. So none of this is um, on the curriculum, on the African literature curriculum. You know, this is all local writing, local authors. And um, there's some absolutely incredible uh, creative writing. There's a whole treasure trove in the archives. So I'm going to this very African archive with, um, with no colonial participants in it and um, and very much looking forward to um, finding what sort of cultural histories can emerge by looking at um, newspaper, newsprint creativity, as I'm calling it. That sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading it when you're finished with it. Thank you, Stephanie Newell, for joining me today to discuss histories of dirt, media, and urban life in colonial and post-colonial Lagos. This was published in 2020 by Duke University Press. I assume it is available at the Duke University Press website um, if anybody wants to purchase it. And thank you, Stephanie, for joining me today. Thank you.